0: Today, we are hanging around the year 2000. We're going to finish it out. We're going to talk about the television shows, the, the very, very influential, very impactful. Transformational television shows that came out of nowhere that dominated, dominated the year 2000 and actually set the stage for what would come in the years ahead in 2003, 2004, 2004, uh, 2005. Yes, yes, there were shows that were that incredibly influential, and we'll discuss them again today. We get deeper into the fate of the actual X-Men line of comic books uh, in 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 the year 2000. Did the editor-in-chief of Marvel really said? Did anything good happen to these books in the 90s and then make plans based on that? Yes. Yes, I'm going to tell you right now. We cover it. We talk extensively about it and the influence and the direction and maybe the failure to launch of that particular initiative that was going on in the year 2000. We're also going to discuss the recent Heritage Auctions, the million-dollar sales that took place, the million-dollar sales that took place in the recent heritage auctions with some huge iconic works the money is flowing you are not you're not seeing the pinch not in those auctions not not after you hear the prices that i share with you and most importantly today we pause and remember the life of the magnificent timothy sale tim sale was a buddy he's a sweetheart he was an absolute master of the craft a graphic storyteller uh, with, with no equal, and he has left us. He is no longer with us. He has passed, and we are going to give him the celebration that he is due today on Rob's Observations. Hey, everybody! Welcome to another edition of Rob's Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld, I of the comic book career that has spanned 37 years. I have written comics, drawn comics, published comics. Edited comics, produced comics. It's kind of in my blood. These observations are my own, and they are a reflection of uh, all my entire life, the career uh, of collecting, consuming. I call it. I've consumed comic books uh, since I was seven years old, and pulled them off those rickety spinner racks at the liquor store, the Seven Eleven, uh, the drugstore. We don't we don't give those as much run as we used to. It used to be a regular discussion here on the show how how much I uh, Loved, frequenting all of the different haunts and the 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 famed uh, you know cro- uh, cross section of Broadway and Magnolia that that brought me not one not two not three opportunities to consume comic books on a regular basis. Stater Brothers, they were on sale at the grocery store across the street was the Pizza Hut. That's where I would go to eat the comics on weekends after I bought them. There was a Seven Eleven. And it was facing a liquor store. And of all of those, the 7-Eleven is still there. The Pizza Hut is still there. The liquor store is gone, abdicated, and replaced by the 7-Eleven, which used to be across the street. Are you confused yet? You shouldn't be. This was a source of tremendous joy for me as a kid. Um, Pulling those comic books and the magic that they contained and the journeys that they continue to take me on to this day. Because I'm still still buying comics, just, just not as many as I used to when I was seven, eight, nine, ten years old, uh, I, the, the the magic, the the, the the period that I grew up with this bronze age of comics. We're going to circle back to this bronze age of comics at the end of today's show because there is a giant auction that will be taking place later on today, and we will circle back and review some of those monumental uh, purchases. The, the 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 biggest purchase in the catalog will be from a crowning achievement in the comic book world that came out during the Bronze Age. Yes, Frank Miller's Dark Knight, number one, the cover to the acclaimed, most transformative graphic novel work of the last 50 years or more is going up for auction. We'll we'll come back at the end of the show uh, after we, we wrap up this latest installment of our Decade series on the year 2000. We'll come back and we'll wrap that up. But again, Ah, uh, the Bronze Age of comics super special, bearing all of that out now with the incredible prices that are being paid from for artwork from that time. and uh, and 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 I'm very grateful that has been really the 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 window that I have been collecting for uh, the last two two decades, at least, really just hyper focused on only the Bronze Age. So we'll circle back and review what insane price. It is currently at one point nine million dollars, I believe. Uh, before the auction even starts in the pre-bidding. So we will review that uh, coming up soon. But we are going to finish off our series in the year 2000. I love this decade series. We, uh, f- we, we, we isolate a certain year that really shifted uh, most creative tastes in the culture based on the TVs, the movies, and the comic books and the music that was coming out on, on, on any particular year. The year 2000 has been a blast so far. The first part we covered a lot of the films, the movies. Um, anybody remember Gladiator, which is uh, how Elizabeth Taylor referred to it again and again as as it was winning the Oscar um, in 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 the 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 Oscar season that followed that year. But but uh, Mission Impossible to Gladiator, the Grinch that stole Christmas. These are your, your these are your big giant movies. Um, From the year 2000, but none was more important as we covered than X-Men, the first giant team uh, comic book superhero film where 12, 13 characters simultaneously displayed uh, superpowers on screen. We hadn't seen anything even remotely like this yet. But X-Men opened the door for all that would follow. Spider-Man, a couple of years later from Sony, and then between the Spider-Man and the X-Men films, the early 2000s are just a bouncing ball between the success of Spider-Man, the success of Fox, the success of Spider-Man. And those films really laid the groundwork for everything that would come in the MCU. But you have to have that release in in June of 2000 of X-Men, a comic book that was, again, I said given to you for the least uh, uh, affordable for for the for the most affordable you know budget the, the Fox did not like to go over uh, e- even a, a penny of what they had budgeted for and 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 believe me having been with them during the Deadpool movies Deadpool one and Deadpool two I got to see firsthand up close how much they uh, guard those expenditures and and going back to their days again as i've said in the planet of the apes and being such a, a historian and a fan of all those planet of the apes films i mean they would be like nope the first movie has to be made for 1.8 million dollars and it made four million dollars so they made the second movie beneath the planet of the apes for like 1.6 i think by that by the time the final uh planet of the ape movie comes comes out it may be at like an eight hundred and fifty thousand dollar budget or just scratching a thousand uh, i mean a hundred Excuse me, just scratching a million. It's it's just the way that the bean counters ran the show back then. Business business business. And uh and and in the year 2000, uh X-Men was not a 100 million dollar budgeted film. It was in the 60s, in the 60 million dollar range. And uh still still 10 more million than they than they uh spent on Deadpool 16 years later. So so again, uh but 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 seeing X-Men come to life all those new names, all of those new faces, all of those to to, to much of the public, like our neighbors, we we knew that our neighbors would like the X-Men film, my wife and I, when it was released based on the fact that it was really, it really embraced the school setting. And uh, Wolverine being the audience surrogate walking through that mansion is a really pivotal scene because you are Wolverine in that scene, you are the audience surrogate walking through, discovering all the different rooms, the classrooms. That there's a jet underneath the basketball court. All of the different, um, you know, subterranean levels. It's just, it, 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 especially during a period where Harry Potter was exploding at the same time, not just on on uh, on film, but obviously the Harry Potter books had really crashed the late '90s with all of their ridiculous popularity. And and so this idea of a school for young superpowered beings was being experienced for so much of the public for the first time. It was not just comic book fans that powered that box office. It wasn't just fans of the Fox cartoon, which was number one for so many years and was a huge proponent in why the movie got made at all. I don't think the movie ever gets green light based on the comic books alone. It needed that ridiculous run of success on Fox where it was number one. And for so many of you, obviously and myself included, I never missed an episode. I loved the Fox cartoon series. I loved how it adapted the old and the new. It took a Days of Future Past storyline. It threw uh, familiar faces that were currently in the X Men. It had it had the cartoon had Bishop. It had Cable. Uh, it, it was always extremely reflective of the comic books that were coming back at the time. And kudos to the creative team for pulling that off. But the X Men cartoon was so um, crucial in getting this movie in front of audiences. But again, when a movie pops big. And back in those days, globally, to make over $300 million, you've got to then be drawing the the attention of just the casual passerby, what they call a four-quadrant picture, where it appeals to young adults, uh, young adult males, young adult females, kids, and then older uh, adults, male and female. It's your four-quadrant blockbuster. And, and back again in those days, having a movie do $150 million in the summer, which is not a sequel, was a big deal was a really big deal. I mean, something like Mission Impossible, powered by the, you know, giant charisma of its lead, you know, actor, superstar Tom Cruise, who had, who had been on a tear. Uh, that, that movie did 60 million more than X-Men, but it was a sequel to a hugely successful movie, and it had the biggest movie star in the world. Again, Hugh Jackman was being discovered by us audiences for the first time. So the X-Men movie is one of the huge reasons that the year 2000 is such a pivotal year. We're going to stick with the X-Men here for a minute because the X-Men uh, not being as accessible to the public in the comic book world, as I mentioned in part two of this uh, year 2000 decade series, uh, in, in, I'm sorry, in part one, in part one of our 2000 series, uh, the new publisher of Marvel Comics, Bill Jemis, was upset that there was not comic book material that was more reflective of what we saw in the film and that the and that the comic book editorial staff had made a decision to stand down and not really cash all their chips in on reflecting what was going to be on the screen because there had not been any indication that the x-men movie was going to be successful and it wasn't and if it was not successful and it was a bomb because again you're sitting there going okay so so one of the biggest names in the movie is is you know, Captain Picard from the Star Trek franchise. Are they going to accept him as Professor Xavier, even though he looks just like Professor X? You know, he's kind of our leading, you know, uh, uh, star appeal. Uh, Ian McKellen had not become Gandalf and taken the world world by storm as he would shortly thereafter. And then going back and forth between Magneto and Gandalf was a giant boon to both New Line and Fox. They, 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 they really, they, they fed off each other. But again, I covered in part one how Hugh Jackman was a replacement for Gray Scott, who could not break uh, from the reshoot schedule, the extended schedule on Mission Impossible 2. He was the original uh, actor cast as Wolverine. So Hugh Jackman won the role, and we should all be so thankful. He's fantastic in it. And yes, he was much taller than Wolverine was in the movies, and nobody gave a shit. We loved him. We absolutely loved him. He was fantastic. I couldn't believe how great he looked as Wolverine. Wolverine is such the centerpiece of so much of the X-Men's popularity whether it's video games cartoons the long-standing appeal of the comic books or now in this film realm but Hugh Jackman was being discovered by us other actors like James Marsden Fomka Jensen was that this was this was a, a a key kind of spotlight for them they were certainly not box office stars drawing dollars to the cinemas at that time but the fact that it worked all together was really a shock to everybody. I know My everybody in the Hollywood, the, the, in the movie business was just shocked that X-Men had the success that it did. Most people had it penciled in as not succeeding, not connecting, that there was a reason they hadn't done comic book movies like this. They hadn't gone all in with multiple uh, characters, multiple storylines. They thought this was going to be too convoluted. People won't understand. But again, the school surrogate aspect is what was the giant success of that film. It was such a fantastic... Uh, uh, element and, and it really served to to you know connect with with the audiences. Well, being upset with how the X Men was run was a theme that was going to continue through 2000. Now, the ultimate line of comics that we discussed in part one of this series, really as I as I went out of my way, even in the Marvel published books which outline each of their years celebrating 80 years of their publications, that when they um, isolate the year 2000. They they talk about how the ultimate line of comics was introduced. The ultimate line of comics was introduced to to be more accessible to younger viewers. It was Peter Parker and Mary Jane in high school again with laptops and cell phones and new tech. But they were retelling stories that featured the Vulture, that featured uh, Doc Ock, that featured you know Green Goblin. They were redoing all of the successful Stanley and Steve Ditko formulas with a fresh approach with 2000 technology with you know the new millennium represented. The X-Men also became re-represented as younger, as newer, and you got to re-know the X-Men, Professor Xavier, the Mansion, their mission, um, all over again, again, again through a younger lens. They were not the uncanny X-Men, X-Men line of books that was being published by Marvel that had been so ridiculously successful, carrying the label often through tough times all throughout the '90s. So, and we've gone through dedicated podcasts. The, 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 the X-Men is probably the most covered topic in my um, podcast series because I watched it go from canceled comic to reborn in 1975 with this international lineup, all new characters and faces, and it catapulted to the top of the charts, never looked back. And in the late 80s, Marvel learned how to exploit it, how to split it off, how to ship you two X-Men books a week instead of one a month and capitalize. And even then, they didn't stop from from launching new X books because anything with an X in the title suddenly became a giant earner, a giant seller for Marvel. So in the Uncanny line in 2000, they are still keeping the, the continuity that had been built up all through all these years since the relaunch in 1975. But the Ultimate X Men line, like the Ultimate Spider Man line, like the Eventual Ultimates line, was giving you new derivatives. Of the existing characters, a younger Spider-Man. Now, this isn't the new Spider. This, Ultimate Spider-Man is by no means you, you, your first take at a at a Spider-Man derivative. You you go back and in in, in the 2099 book, they gave you Spider-Man 2099 in the future. They had had Ben Riley, they had the clones, but now you're getting an identical Peter Parker in a different dimension. Again, borrowing from the Heroes Reborn concept, that the stuff is taking place in another continuity, and you're getting younger, fresher. Uh, versions of these characters in the same way that Jim and I did this in Heroes Reborn in 1996. Marvel now goes and takes that exact same formula and applies it to their top-selling titles, Spider-Man and X-Men, and has duplicated them. So you're getting Ultimate Spider-Man, Ultimate X-Men monthly at the same time that you're getting Amazing Spider-Man, Uncanny X-Men, the standard X-Men title. And then the Ultimates is another version of the Avengers. They just don't call them the Avengers. They call them the Ultimates. And so you're getting two Thors, Two Caps, two Iron Mans, two Hawkeyes, two Giant Men, two Wasps. I mean, eventually they do that with the Fantastic Four. So, you know, you've got two reeds, two things, two two human torches. Uh, you've got two Man. you You've got all the entire rogues gallery of Spider-Man is massively well represented in the pages of the Ultimate Spider-Man book. So this, I call this the age of the derivative that Marvel really leaned into having two or three of everything. This would bleed into the regular Marvel Universe when Hulk turns red. Now, Hulk had gone from gray to green, but he was always Bruce Banner. Now you had a red Hulk. You also get a red She-Hulk. As, again, they start adapting this and going to this multiple versions of the same character again and again and again. We've got Falcon became Captain America after uh, Bucky became Captain America. It's it's now new identities. It's that 1986 ad where it's gray Hulk, black suit spider-man bearded thor silver and, and red iron man armor and u.s agent instead of captain america it's that all over again except on steroids what what we discussed in season one here with a uh, retailer and convention promoter named jimmy jay he talked extensively about how retailers refer to that period as like new coke because not not all of it stuck certainly the black spider-man is the most romantic most nostalgic of that period but this idea to like say look kids your old characters are new, and they're in fresh, you know, fresh conditions. And and we've gone back to Gray Hulk, and Spider Man doesn't have his red and blue costume; it's black now. And and Cap isn't even Steve Rogers; it's this guy called U.S. Agent. And so anyway, that '86 kind of new Coke, new Marvel, new Marvel formula was now being adapted across the line, and they took between here the Heroes Reborn kind of initiative, and then the new Marvel initiative. Marvel was giving you all new costumed versions of familiar characters that you knew and they were doing it again and again and again and again again two Hawkeyes two Black Widows uh two Thors two Caps um when we did Heroes Reborn those were the only versions you got only Cap in the Heroes Reborn only Iron Man in the Heroes Reborn only Thor that was the big difference now you're getting two of two of it's the standard Marvel Universe and it's the ultimate Marvel Universe and so they are doubling down and again from you know other applications. Suddenly, you're getting for the first time. You're getting the son of Wolverine. You're getting you know another Wolverine female uh, 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 depiction of Wolverine. It's all about multiplying what is existing and what is working at Marvel, and it carries way through to y- recent years with you know Riri and the you know uh, the, the the female Iron Man. And and so 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 again, this is something that they have leaned into and, and, and at least in the last 10, 12 years. Uh, and look, obviously, yes, in 2009, you got lady Deadpool. I mean, it didn't stop there. Um, we've had young cable. So again, my own creations, my own contributions got this exact same treatment, at least with lady Deadpool. I can say I I literally contributed to it myself. So, so this, this age of the derivative, which I, I, don't see any, any signs of of slowing down because it has become so ridiculously lucrative. I mean, again, when you're sitting there in 2007, 2008, and there's a red Hulk, a green Hulk, a red she Hulk, a green she Hulk. I mean, and now they're in the same universe, staring each other down, fighting each other. I mean, that's exciting. That's exciting. So, so the ultimate universe was really the doorway to exploit this, but on the, in the other realm of comic book publishing, specifically the x-men they went through a very weird period now i have it on record so the ultimates is kind of squared away they've now got this your younger fresher editions. and again a lot of these guys that they hired to transform marvel are gone axel alonso left uh six years ago and 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 he had a good long run he eventually became editor-in-chief he is one of the guys cited in this you know marvel by the decades and the year-by-year year chronicle of, of, of how Marvel conducted its business. Uh, Stuart Moore, these guys uh, were gone and did not kind of go the distance. There are guys at Marvel that are still there from 2002. I I, I can think of Tom Brevoort. I can think of, you know, uh, C.B. Savolsky. I can go back, not just 2002, you know, 2000. Um, a guy behind the scenes named Dan Buckley. There's a lot of names that are still there. There isn't this constant turnover. But as far as X-Men editors, uh, even even Joe Quesada, who who we're going to mention, is now off the payroll. He is gone. He is out of Marvel in an executive capacity. He stopped being editor-in-chief, I'm going to guess, like 2009, 2008, maybe somewhere around. I think it was a seven-year run. Uh, not, Not quite sure. Don't have the dates in front of me. But then he was followed by Axel Alonso and now C.B. Savolsky. I have always mentioned, and it is worth mentioning, I love mentioning, because I was challenged at one point by an executive at Marvel when I say that I have been with seven editors-in-chief. I was hired when Jim Shooter was in his last year. So Jim Shooter, I was in the last year of Jim Shooter. Then Tom DeFalco took over, and that was a huge, giant, you know, Huge window of massive success for Marvel under Tom DeFalco. Then there was a period, it was one year, that there was five different editors that formed a collective editor-in-chief. If you talk to people at Marvel, they remember it well. It wasn't well publicized. There was maybe one or two articles about it in popular media. But then from there, you got Bob Harris. He's the fourth in that period. Then from Bob you got Joe. From Joe you got Axel, and now you have CB Sobolski. My career has spanned seven editors in chiefs, um, and and I, I I hope that it it I I love CB Sobolski. I hope he uh, stays in the capacity that he is. He is the the editor in chief that I have enjoyed the most to date. So I hope that there isn't an eighth, but seven is a good robust number. And 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 like I said, my career has spanned seven Marvel editors in chief. It's crazy, but. When Joe Casada took over as editor-in-chief, now that the ultimate line is squared away per the vision of Bill Jemis, who was the guy who wanted it and who expressed that it was coming when, when he had took me out to lunch in July. It was uh, the last week of July in the year 2000, the year 2000. I tried to sing it earlier. I did a terrible job, but I think it was Conan O'Brien who used to talk about you know predictions in the year 2000 when people were sitting on his couch in like 2005, 2006, 2007, because it sounds so futuristic, right? The year 2000 it sounds wonderfully futuristic well according to the editors at the time and i was working with them remember in 2000 i'm doing wolverine i close out the fourth quarter with four issues of wolverine uh i think it's is it 154 155 156 157 so i was there i had a seat at the table i was doing regular work sending it in you still send it in via fedex boxes the scanners weren't quite uh the way to go yet that would come later in, in, in terms of all the technical files so yeah, 22 years ago seems like yesterday like I said I had my first we had our first child in 2000 but but boy I I can remember it like it was yesterday but it is in fact over 22 years ago that all this went down so Mark Powers was the X-Men editor and I had worked with him earlier uh in 1999 doing a run on cable when again they needed a slot filled and uh the funny thing about those Wolverine issues that I, I mentioned in the first part, and this is just is that, you know, we started because I got the job doing them months before they, they arrived and you saw them. And my my wife was pregnant and with, with, with my oldest son, Luke. And so we were going to the Lamaze classes, the early baby learning classes. And I was like, man, I got to stay ahead on this deadline. So I would take my sketchbook and I have sketchbooks that are like two inches by two inches. They're very tiny. And I would be, you know, doing layouts to Wolverine 155 while we were, you know, in the class and it's just all very clear to me uh that d- doing this work back in the summer of 2000 so that's just a weird crazy aside <laughs> but my wife has always been the coolest like yeah bring it along that's okay i uh, you know she's like i'm i'm having the baby if there's anything per- pertinent I'll, I'll elbow you and and get you to look up but generally generally i was good for a couple layouts per per uh, class before i was completely engaged and retained all the information and yes i was uh, my wife will tell you i was uh I, I i i was a a a good lieutenant in in the birthing room when when, when my son came and I, and I and i put all of the the uh the applications you know I- into play i mean uh, those of you who have uh, had children alongside your wives you you know the the secret of the ice chips especially that first one G- give those ice chips come on you know alleviate some of that pain distract from some of that pain okay so enough of that the editors that I was working with, Mark Powers, who was editing the X-Men line, his assistant Jason Liebig and another named Mark Mike Martz. Mike would go on to be kind of in the big chair after Mark Powers and Jason Liebig are shown the door. And they are shown the door primarily on the back of the fact that when uh, Joe Quesada takes over as editor-in-chief, because my phone rang right after this happened. My phone rang. You don't say something like what I'm going to share with you and expect the phone not to ring. And Mark Powers and Jason Liebig and the guys all informed me that you can't believe what just happened. You can't just believe what what just happened. They 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 were like breathless in telling me this, in the same way that I'm telling you now. Because I can't believe it happened. It's crazy. But they called me. It was an it was my afternoon, so it was you know probably early evening in New York. But the new editor in chief walked in with a handful of comic books from the X-Men comic books from the 90s because these guys are the X-Men editors. They were editing the most successful line of books to date. And uh, they had gotten their jobs under Bob Harris. Bob Harris was the editor when X-Men sold 8 million, when X-Force sold 5 million, when the X-Men, Mutant Genesis, all of your favorite crossovers, all of those books, Age of Apocalypse. Bob was the guy at the helm. He had ceded to his assistants and made them the full-time guys, and that is... Jason Liebig and Mark Powers, who was the the top dog. And then, of course, Mike Martz was, was waiting in the wings in, in a different capacity. And Joe said, with these copies of 90s X-Men comics, he put them on the table and he said, so, did anything good happen in these books in the 90s? And it was just, they didn't know. Is this guy joking? Is he kidding? Is this real? It was such a weird approach. But apparently, he really felt like the X-Men needed a facelift. And was questioning whether any of the success that it had sustained had carried over, and it was just a weird. It, it's the thing that stuck with everybody, and again, it's the thing that they led with when they called me. Did anything good happen in these books in the '90s? These are bestsellers. These are the bestsellers. These are transformational books that. That again, as I as I told you in an earlier podcast, uh, in, in 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 the decade series that we covered, nineteen ninety one. I mean, five million copies and eight million copies of single issues were more than certain titles, lines of books made for Marvel in the entire year. But X-Force and X-Men achieved that in single months. I've told you guys X-Force number two sold over a million copies. Just, just so you know, like that's that, that, that was the drop off from 5 million. You know, you, you, you still were selling a million copies, a million four with your second issue. I mean, these books were ridiculously successful. The merchandise, the cartoons, the toys that these comics sold was was phenomenal and not duplicated by anything that would follow. But so this was put forth and there was a dissatisfaction with what was going on with the X-Men. Now, in part one of this, I told you that Bill Jemis, when asking me what my favorite comic book was, I told him it was The Authority over at DC, which was this kind of avant-garde, R-rated, independent-minded take on a Justice League-type superhero team that was started by Warren Ellis and Brian Hitch and picked up creatively by Mark Miller, and Frank Quietly, and the Mark Miller Frank Quietly stuff was the stuff that turned my crank. It felt like the Frank Miller Dark Knight, you know, of that era was, was fully engaged in twisting our minds with this really, you know, wild rendition of a Justice League style, you know, super team book. It was super violent, super kind of lewd and crude, and just it was the perfect breath of fresh air in the industry in the summer of 2000. Well... They said, we got Mark Miller. He's coming to work for us. Jim has said, he's, he's going to come. And sh- sure enough, he's the guy that writes Ultimate X-Men. He's the guy that gives you the transformative run on Ultimates that I covered in the first part. That was fantastic. It, it, it picked up on all familiar threads through the Avengers history and the X-Men history, but it pushed all new buttons. And, and it was uh, um, just an amazing, an amazing piece of work that really took the fandom, and f- I mean, the entire industry by storm. Ultimates and Ultimate X-Men were ridiculously successful but there was another writer named Grant Morrison who had done tremendous work from Animal Man on through over at DC Comics and they he, he another a British writer because the British invasion was in full force you had Garth Ennis you had you had Mark Miller you had Grant Morrison obviously everyone is still kind of under the umbrella of Alan Moore uh, the, the the these the, the the British invasion was in you know was in just full on you know, assault mode as they were taking over book after book after book. Well, Grant Morrison was handed the reins of the X-Men, and they were going to give it to Frank Quietly to draw, and it was supposed to be an all-new age of X-Men, and Grant Morrison wanted the X-Men wearing, like, firefighter suits because that's what these big puffy jackets they put on them uh, looked like in kind of ribbed leather pants, and it was uh, was an interesting look. It wasn't my favorite look of the X-Men, but it was a look nonetheless, and it was part of what they were going to launch coming out of 2000 they started hatching these plans and making these plans in the year 2000 and everything that was set in that X-Men editorial meeting and shifting of the creative direction was going to be felt shortly uh, in just a few short months as it pivoted to 2001. But the creative vision was really not enacted in a way that we all um, wanted it to be because again, Frank quietly was the star of the show. When he didn't do issues of uh, authority, they gave it to Art Adams. I mean, they gave it to an, a fantastic, you know, talented, am- amazingly gifted penciler who would do an arc if Frank couldn't do it. Frank Quietly's work is somewhere between Mobius uh, and and Frank Miller Dark Knight, and and it's it, that the characters are incredibly uh, impressionistic and their their movements are ethereal, but then they're thick and they're tough and they're gritty. And and that's where the Frank Miller aspect comes in. So it's it's this really interesting combo of Mobius and uh, the artist, the illustrator Mobius, uh, and uh, all also known as Jean Giraud. But Mobius is his is his moniker that you would know him by in his multiple styles. But through all those different styles, there is this kind of one constant, and it's these kind of leath, quietly moving, but very expressive characters, and then the bold, thick, dynamic. Um, um, you know, rage of Frank Miller combined into this one guy, and and he's a fantastic storyteller. Frank quietly is the real deal. The fact that he was coming on the X Men was news enough for me to buy into it. But he did not even do anything remotely close to the first year's worth of X Men stories. So you got Grant Morrison who's going to come on, and honestly, in his first issue, introduces a new character that is still my favorite new character introduced in the X-Men in the last 20 plus years. And that is Cassandra Nova. He revealed that Professor Xavier has a very nasty sister who is just as powerful, but much more sinister. And her plans were laid out in the first four issues drawn by Frank Quietly from Grant Morrison with this new version of the X-Men wearing firefighter jackets. And, uh, And yet Quietly suddenly started missing two issues, three issues you know, fill-ins by Ethan Van Skyver at first, and then, and here is where it was the big slip on the banana peel. X-Men books have always been illustrated by some of the slickest, most commercial artists of the time. You can't go through their history and not hit a really commercial slick penciler. It, slick is a word that I've heard other people use. It's, it's not something that I, oh, that artwork's really slick, but I hear it a lot. But it's polished, it's sharp, it's clean. What I will say is attractive, very attractive, commercially drawn art that is kind of always at the top of the art form, whether it was Art Adams, going all the way back to Dave Cochran, John Byrne, Paul Smith, Mark Silvestri, obviously Jim Lee, who who really is the spiritual successor to everything that John Byrne started and succeeded at. But, but I mean, just just stretching from John Byrne to Jim Lee, you get this incredible run, whether it's Rick, Rick Leonardi on fill or Arthur Adams on annuals, Barry Windsor Smith, you get some of the most accomplished artists ever, um, depicting the X-Men. Very commercial, very, very, very appealing work. Quietly fit that mold. But his fill-in and a gentleman named Igor Corday, who is a fine artist but stylistically just a, a, a not not the most optimal fit for the X-Men, became the guy that did just as much, if not more, issues of the X-Men, especially in the first year. I think you were, Igor Corday goes down as doing six issues in the first year of the x-men and suddenly you're like this isn't what i signed on for what igor corday lacks in frank quietly's commercial line and appeal he completely uh does not have frank's ability to tell a story frank quietly's ability to tell a story and his amazing storytelling is not the, the, C- igor corday is not in the same vein now again igor corday fine artist you know great illustrator but stylistically, just not the best match. And comic books, just like movies and movie stars, there are some, you know, roles that aren't the best match. Ryan Reynolds will tell you he was not as good of a match for Green Lantern as he was for Deadpool. And 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 that's what we're really discussing here is that Igor Corday was uh, suddenly doing more of these X Men books than Frank quietly was. And and you're, and you're like, wait, we, we we rebooted everything in the in the Marvel universe restructuring these x-men books even the uh the the complementary artist to the other x-men book the 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 standard x-men book while they did uh you know they re-envisioned the line with the uncanny and the x-men the adjectiveless x-men just like those was there was the, the adjective spider-man that's what they called it because they took the amazing off it was just spider-man and with x-men it was just x-men the jim lee one that sold millions of copies they got gave one of them to Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly, and then the other one to Joe Casey and Ian Churchill. Ian Churchill is gone almost immediately. Uh, again, wasn't hitting the marks. And suddenly you're getting all manner of different fill-in issue and artists. And it's like, wait, this isn't what sustained runs are made of. This isn't what success, you know, on these books is meant to look like. And it wasn't. Fans, retailers were really upset with what was apparently, um, in my mind, in my in my history as a fan, the biggest bait and switch I had ever experienced, and 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 all manner of different people have told me, well, it was this guy's call. It was this guy's call. Look, at the end of the day, it shouldn't have happened. Igor Cordish is not uh, a guy who should be following Frank quietly and filling in for him on the X Men. The X Men run by Frank by by Grant Morrison ends, by the way, with an epic four issue Mark Silvestri kind of uh, send off. It is it, it is a futuristic. Tail and Grant really rises to the occasion. Mark again, you know, an heir apparent to the X Men, you know, legacy with his incredible run that he had done in the the late '80s, early '90s. He stepped in and just knocked it out of the park. And it's like this brilliant, uh, the 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 the, these absolutely brilliant uh, depictions of the X Men from all of these commercial guys were just just immediately forgotten. As I mean, I can see. Igor Corday doing great war comics like like Weird War Tales and Sergeant Rock and, and, and just a grittier kind of solo, maybe westerns. Um, it, the, the style, the appeal just was not there from fans, from retailers alike, and it completely is the blot on this otherwise brilliant run by Grant Morrison who introduced all these new concepts and, and, and characters. And, and in, in my, you know, fandom, In my, my, my fan, from my fan appeal, Grant was the single best writer to take over the book following Chris Claremont. And I think they are still, you know, mining some of his, uh, amazing concepts that he laid out, but this is a really weird period for the X-Men. And I can tell you that at one point, uh, called me personally when I was doing the X-Force miniseries, when I was bringing it back in 2004 and that was because Bill Jemis had called me actually and C.B. Sobolski was the first one to contact me. Bill Jemis did the follow-up. We, did the, we, we were able to come to terms on a contract. I started doing that. And before it was done, because I was once again, as I was in the original X-Men book, I was going to plot it, do the stories. I had a story in my mind. And uh, I figured, well, you know what? The fans would probably want to see me reunited with the scripter because that gives it a little bit of a nostalgic flair. And I, there's nobody else I was really interested in dancing with at the time. I didn't want to try out anybody new. So I had given the scripter a call who had done the previous work and he was happy to, you know, come on board. And, uh, I got a call and, and, and Joey Q said, Hey, 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 I, I know we're signing you to do this. And, uh, I, I, I was just wondering if you would be open to to using someone else if you would be open to uh considering uh uh you know working with uh w- w- with someone else and 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 I'm like well, well who do you have in mind and he's like well I really think it would be great if you and Peter Milligan from ecstatics would combine and I just shut that down immediately I said no that's not the direction I'm going in ecstatics is a cool comic. I like it. It's very humorous. Uh, it's, it's very satirical. I liked it. I don't really, um, view it in from my fan mind. I know it is Canon in the X-Men world, but I just, it was so with, a, I mean, dupe and, and, and it was just very humor based and nothing like what I wanted to do. But, but the key words were when Q said to me, uh, look, I could really get behind this. I, I really want to get behind you doing X-Force again. And then and, and, and this would do it to me. And I took that as yeah, that, that I, I'm not doing this for your approval. I'm doing this for the fans. And, uh, X-Force 2004 came out with zero bells, zero whistles, and we crushed it. And we broke through a sales ceiling that even Mike Martz, who called me at the time said, "Rob, we're, we're, we're doing six figures on your X-Force, uh, uh, relaunch. And, and that is with me, uh, just dismissing out of hand that I would be utilizing Peter Milligan, who sure he's a nice guy and clearly a talented guy had been buying his stuff since the 80s he had books coming out independent books uh when i was working at comic book retail but ecstatics just was not my cup of tea just like i think igor Corday was not my cup of tea and should not have been the artist picked to do the fill-in work um on following and implementing frank quietly especially when quietly was missing large chunks again go to the authority who did they use when frank quietly couldn't you know um make his his marks, they got Art Adams, one of arguably the most commercial, most popular comic book illustrators of all space and time. So it was a very uh uh by Q calling me, he was asserting his influence on the X office. And I just said, No thanks. That's not the way this is gonna go. I had already signed my contract. I was already uh set to go. I had already felt like giving you know, giving the scriptor another shot was 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 probably the best way to go and would be the one that, that that the fans would would enjoy the most given that this version of X-Force had not been given to them in years. So, as I'm saying, I had my own personal experiences from 2000 on Wolverine to now 2003 because the book comes out in 2004, but I started working uh, on X-Force. It was the book that brought me out of retirement in 2003. And again, that is because CB Cebulski contacted me and Bill Jemis contacted me. But the idea that, well, I could really get behind it if Peter Milligan. I was completely comfortable with not having the support of the editor in chief in that capacity and not using what he uh, had selected as his dream team up. It just felt like it would then not be my vision and it would be this compromised vision with ecstatics bleeding into my X force. And I wasn't having it. I didn't had zero interest in it. The bottom line is this new plan for the X-Men looked great on paper, but the implementation of it was, um, Extremely disappointing. And and again, the, the, the art and, and the fulfillment of Grant Morrison's story following to someone outside of Frank Quietly should have been much better thought through and executed. And the results would have been phenomenal and possibly given us maybe, possibly, the greatest X-Men story of all time had it been better thought through and there had been better uh, uh, complementary artists chosen to fill in for Frank Quietly when he couldn't get the job done. Again, you always have to realize that when I look at the X Men, I look at it through a lens from a beloved fan. Uh, as I said, no other subject has been covered more on my podcast than the X Men. They are truly the most impactful concept uh, of of my entire pop culture universe when it comes to comic books. Uh, I mean, it's it's right up there with Star Wars. These are giant, giant uh, characters, stories. Uh, stuff that has inspired us, made us cry as X-Men fans. And, and uh, you know, the world is waiting for the, the, the now, you know, Marvel, the MCU wing of, of, of Marvel, who now has possession of the X-Men intellectual property due to the fact that Disney bought Fox. Everyone is waiting for yet a, a, a new coat of paint to be applied to these characters. And, and who knows? What kind of interest that will spark? Who knows when they uh, give you the, the the MCU version, not the Fox version. And I know that they did absolutely implement Patrick Stewart and Dr. Strange, the Dr. Strange 2 movie. And, and, and so so there's been a taste of that. But, but when they do their full-on relaunch of this, again, you will see the X-Men reach all, I believe, all new heights of popularity. But, you know that said notwithstanding the the history of the x-men as the best selling comic i mean they were the best selling comic book for 15 years maybe 20 years when you go back and you look at the averages so for this new regime to have come in wonder did anything good happen in these 90s in these 90s books which was you know come on you're talking about the relaunch of x-men the the, the birth of cable deadpool domino shatterstar you know the x-force team strife you've got a uh, You've got Age of Apocalypse. You've got all these amazing things that happened, and then the 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 radical redirection with Grant Morrison, and yet you just did not pair him with. Uh, I mean, it, it's literally. I mean, you see it in sports clubs all the time. They're like this: these two players don't don't work well together. I mean, they 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 uh, they move they car- they move players all the time because this center doesn't work with this guard well or this power forward, and you're constantly switching because you want to achieve maximum you know potential out of what you have and I just believe as I said that the complimentary artists to Frank quietly along line, along the lines of Igor Corday were, were just not optimal for the X-Men brand. So this entire 2000s initiative cuz you you get it from the Ultimates and then again once they start tinkering with the X-Men, you get another X-Men number 1. It's called Astonishing X-Men that comes out of this entire reboot because they wanted to give Joss Whedon, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who's now obviously extremely controversial uh, uh, figure, but they wanted to capitalize on the success that he had had with Buffy, so they gave him his own uh, just standalone adventures with their kind of own sense of continuity. And 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 again, when I talk about the derivatives and the spinoffs, this is Part and partial of what this age is about. They give Mark Miller a Spider-Man book. They did this with Terry Dodson. It lasts for twelve issues. You then get Marvel Knights versions of the Fantastic Four. I mean, everyone is getting multiple iterations of the same character. And 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 it was understood. And I know maybe a little more about this than I should let on. And I'm going to do this at some other time. This is this is definitely going to get kicked down. What I what I bring up here is going to get kicked down the way for another time. But there was an idea that Marvel did not want any new characters, that they were rethinking their approach to how to handle new concepts and characters. So the safest approach was just to keep doing more Captain America, to keep doing more Spider-Man, to keep doing more uh, uh, Wolverine and the X-Men and just keep giving you these same characters over and over again in different iterations whether it was the ultimate x-men the astonishing x-men the uncanny x-men the marvel knights fantastic four the ultimate fantastic four the marvel you know standard fantastic four i mean this is kind of really what i viewed this entire era which is why i believe the age of derivatives was born here and 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 took took root in a way that it had never done before or since but it was definitely part of a plan and it was part of a plan to just uh exploit what was already what already existed and so in that you know retrospect i feel like kelly mcgillis kelly mcgillis in top gun when she's uh calling out this move by maverick the original 1986 and says you know i think we've well well this there was a initiative here that 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 speaking to matt maverick she's saying something along the lines of like well this was basically a ballsy move we have uh reviewed it and found it to be not optimal that that it's a it's a it's a great great scene and Tom can't believe Maverick can't believe that the girly stooping is 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 calling him out in front of the whole class so here's the deal I I believe this era of Marvel in this uh post bankruptcy and with this new management uh you know I I just don't think it was a, a terribly innovative age it was it is not an age of Marvel that I uh assign great innovation to so that is my uh, but, but, but certainly they, they, they really doubled down on the existing and and for the most part, the, I mean, the existing Stan and Jack kind of, uh, the, 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 the existing Stan and Jack intellectual properties. I mean, for certain they were really, really into that stuff. I mean, they were way into, um, um, you know, exploiting the existing i mean whether it was iron man or or hulk or 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 spider-man with ditko uh the original you know the original uh marvel canon was was the stuff that they were just going back to again and again and again and again and mining again and again and again for this during this period so i think we've covered it uh not to for my money the most innovative period in in marvel and and uh you know, I think I understand publishing. I understand creativity. I've been on both sides of them, and uh, this was definitely a path that was chosen. They 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 went down that road again. Eventually, Axel Alonso becomes editor in chief. CB is followed. We are in the here and the now. But this episode is about the year 2000. So, real quick, do you remember what you were watching on television in the year 2000? We covered music. We covered movies in the previous. Uh, Episode, but do you remember what TV you were watching? Do you remember, if I said the name Richard Hatch to you, would you know who that is? Of course you would. You'd think, that's the guy that played Apollo on Battlestar Galactica. No, I actually knew Richard. He was a friend of mine. Rest in peace. Uh, When he died, I was completely crushed. That is the Apollo Battlestar Galactica Richard Hatch, but the Richard Hatch that took pop culture by storm debuted on a show called Survivor that hit the airwaves in the spring and summer of 2000 and took the entire television landscape by storm. I mean, the fact that we are on Survivor season, whatever it is now, 190. I mean, they, they, they were doing them two a year there for for, for so many seasons. I I lost track. I, I The last season I watched was the pandemic season, which they didn't know. Obviously, they were having a pandemic. It was filmed prior, but aired during, and the award winner received his prize over Zoom. But it was a great season. Um, but I, I, it's, it's one of those shows you can get back up to get back into at any point in any time. But it was the number one show of, uh, of the season. Uh, uh, it was the number one show of the year 2000 came out of nowhere. People on an Island. Do you want to know what kind of cultural impact it had? Are you aware that the president of, of ABC, the rival network, because C CBS was crushing it with survivor and immediately enacted further seasons and it was this entire kind of game show initiative, really, that, that between survivor and who wants to be a millionaire, which 99, 2000 just blew up. I mean, who wants to be a millionaire? They were airing on multiple days. I mean, it was on Sunday, Thursday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I'm looking up the charts right here. I mean, Regis Philbin was reborn in his senior citizen, you know, uh, age as, as this giant congenial, you know, TV host and, uh, but Survivor, kind of, kind of a game, is a game, game show. Wants to be a millionaire, game show. Then you know, do, do you guys uh, remember all that followed? And then The Amazing Race, another kind of reality-based game show. And 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 Survivor not only birthed all of that, but the ABC president who wanted to compete so badly and get some of those numbers put forth an initiative. Shortly after that, they need to do a show ideally with people marooned on an island, but they didn't want to do a drama version of that. You guys are aware that under J.J. Abrams, that show became Lost. Lost does not exist with, but with Survivor. Survivor had to happen to get Lost to happen. It was absolutely cause and effect. ABC wanted their version of of, of Survivor, and they they felt like a drama, a a drama that, could have people, shirtless, you know, minimal clothes, there's stuff stuff that just automatically comes with being marooned on an island. Um, Men with their shirts off, you know, scantily clad women, um, hot, you know, sunshine, beach, waves, water, coconuts, jungle, animals. I mean, the the wild, the appeal of the wild. And they put that forth and J.J. Abrams came back with his particular take. And that take went on to become Lost, which then fueled ABC to the top of the charts. So they really did piggyback on this enormous success. Because look, me and my friends, you can have your own opinion, but I know me and my friends all in their early 30s or late 20s during the time when this was airing, were like, it's wild to watch people shrink, you know, because everyone's starving. No, Even the last season that I saw two years ago of Survivor, you saw people get on the island and some people would talk like I bulked up, I caloried up because I knew I was going to shed 20 to 30 pounds while I'm on this adventure. If I go the distance and it is, it, it, it is the appeal of watching these people become smaller, lose weight, get, get thinner, gets in some, in some cases completely emaciated and skeletal looking. There is something that I, I, I'm, I'm telling you right now, That is part of the appeal because, again, under these conditions where they are not eating well, where they are not, you know, in their optimal peak form, they have to go out and do these grueling competitions in order to win, uh, you know, a, a, a means of immunity and stay on the island. Well, again, took the world by storm, debuted summer of 2000, set off a landmark. You don't get the amazing race, you don't get lost. There is so much. Uh, that follows and and this was the age of the game show because again right behind it is who wants to be a millionaire the number one drama on television in 2000 was er it stayed at the top friends was knocked down to five. Oh my gosh not number one they were five um you know uh uh the practice was a huge law show it was number 10 law and order again another huge law show it was number nine uh, monday night football was right there in the middle everybody loves raymond was the uh, uh right after friends a top comedy but you are looking at two shows that change the landscape for the next five to six years and that is survivor and who wants to be a millionaire so ridiculously entertaining period and innovation that's innovation i mean Let's take a bunch of people, let's get them on our island own, let's make let, 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 let's let's uh, make them compete for food, watch them shrink, watch them starve. But the thing with Richard Hatch and the thing that was so incredible was he understood immediately this is not a physical competition game. This is a social game. I need you to like me at the end enough to vote for me. And I think we all remember uh, that that woman, her name was Sue. and she said, I would not save you from you are a rat and I would not save you from a snake, Richard Hatch because she thought Richard was bringing her to the end. Um, You know what? That's just too good not to look up. Is it Survivor Borneo? Is that what it was called? Survivor Borneo was the first season, I believe. And what was her name? Her name was, it was Sue. It was, uh, I would not save you from the rat. You are the rat, Richard Hatch. She had a very distinct way that she was talking um, Sue Hawk, that's right, her name was Sue Hawk I would not save you from the rat, you are a snake Oh, so good, so good and Little old Rudy, old Rudy, freaking old man Richard Hatch, Rudy, Sue Hawk Those are my memories from that very Incredible breakthrough season That was Survivor Season 1, so that is your year 2000 Your, 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 your Marvel reboot The X-Men answered The bell, did anything happen to these books That was good in the 90s? like I'm still stunned. I can't even say it without kind of complete astonishment. Yes, millions of copies and millions of toys were moved and the X-Men was behind it and the creative innovators at the beginning of the 90s um, were your your MVPs in that scenario. Yes, always going to stand up for my peer group, for my class. So much weird stuff. As we get deeper and I get more comfortable, you'll learn all sorts of crazy stuff on this podcast and you'll look back and go, hey, he was just laying... He was laying down, he was laying down the foundation of what it would come next. Yes I was. yes, I am. Um, so again, the year 2000, uh, some cool television, some cool movies, some cool comics, but not, not everything worked. I mean I think I think we have shown an example. The X-Men uh, had a great idea. you know, the Ultimate X-Men and the Ultimate Spider-Man, all that was this back- to basic derivative model. But then going forward, you know, I think the uh, the the approach to the X Men office did not advance them. Uh, did not it, it advance uh, you know the principles that they that they were looking to advance the goals that they wanted to advance. It was just very strange. Did you, do you want to know what the top video games of 2000 was? Sure, you do. It's Deus Ex, it's uh, Diablo two, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, and The Legend of Zelda. Okay. Final Fantasy, number nine. I mean, some big stuff here. I remember these games. You got your uh, your Marvel Capcom. Obviously, the Madden games were good, but those are your top games. Deuce X, Diablo two, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater two, Legend of Zelda. You know, video games were just, and the console wars were just starting to um, percolate, and that's a story for another time because, again, I'm not... A gamer, but I raised two boys who were really, really exceptional, and we were, we were deep into those consoles uh, come mid mid 2000s. But hey, you guys, thank you for reviewing this amazing uh, year the, the 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 year that was 2000 in comics, in movies, in television, and I think we have shown what an innovative year it was. I mean, literally just. We could just take away the X Men and go to Gladiator, and like I said, you got all those what we call sword and sandal movies that followed. I mean, from from the 300 movies to even the Passion of the Christ. I mean, sword and sandals is a is a tried and true uh, uh, category in Hollywood that they that they used to make a lot more of, and they didn't. But then Russell Crowe with his breakout performance, and 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 the the movie and and the awards and the accolades and the success of gladiator, you know, you get Troy a couple years later with, with, with Brad Pitt and Eric Banya. Uh, and, uh, I mean, again, then you get 300 and you get the sequel to 300 and you get, you know, shows like Spartacus. I mean, it really was just an avalanche of this new kind of gladiator theme stuff. So the year 2000 was moving. It was shaken and it was, uh, it really was a giant shift in the culture across all of the different mediums and and uh, what 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 a blast it was just discussing each and every aspect of 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 those movements and certainly again in music I mean it was all about pop 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 and more pop is 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 uh, were the acts that absolutely dominated the scene. So the plan was to wrap up today by visiting some of the auction prices as the Heritage Auction took place earlier today with some really huge uh giant pieces of art that were going up some some pretty historic iconic stuff uh the the cover to dark Knight number one went up and uh before it went to final bid it was already like 1.6 million dollars and when it went to final bid at the middle in the middle of this morning it immediately went to 2 million boom 2 million and it just stayed there and they lingered and i think they were uh you know, uh, uh, anticipating, I think that's a safe word. anticipating it was, it was a long linger, uh, but nothing came in beyond 2 million and the heritage people rallied and closed it out and celebrated the fact that a piece of comic book art sold for $2 million. That's, that's some serious, serious scratch, some significant scratch. And, uh, to me, the story of the show, to me, the, the story of, of the auction today, uh, I mean, I was really, I was, I was anticipating some big action on this, but the entire issue of Todd McFarlane's last Spider-Man job uh, went up for for bid, and it was very, you know, there was there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of anticipation. There were some really high prices on a lot of the pages that were uh, getting ready to go up. I mean the. Cover had a $220,000 price tag on it as it, as it was, was preparing to go to live bidding. A lot of you guys, you were, you were able, cause I was able to go through this with my wife today cause she really wanted to watch a lot of this stuff live cause I'd been building it up. And, uh, what happens is, you know, about nine o'clock in the morning, the day of the live auction, you can put in your last bids. I, again, I've won about, you know, six, seven items in the last couple of years and, uh, at Heritage. And, uh, so it was super fun, you know, to, to, to be involved, to, to, to be involved in, uh, in, in, in this awesome, in, in the, uh, in this, in this process. And, uh, the thing is the. The morning of you get your last best offer, but you, you know, and, and so many people have become very accustomed to the fact that you know that when it goes live, it could jump exponentially. And in the case of this like Spider-Man cover, it went live at $220,000 It ended up at $408,000, a single cover. Now, Jim Lee, right before that had three covers and those went for $500,000. Huge, not huge, huge number, but three covers. You have to admit, I mean, and you have to put forth that that is three covers. You are getting three 11 by 17 boards for five hundred five hundred thousand $500,000. Todd is the just pound for pound, just demanding the the biggest prices. And I think is the story of the show from 220 to 408,000 for a single 11 by 17 cover. Again, not three and three look three, three covers at 500,000 is a big deal. There were, interior pages in this issue it's, it's the cover to spider-man 16 it was the last job that todd did on spider-man before he left marvel and he never returned and we started image comics but it was a crossover with myself it was a uh, x an x-force i did parts one and three todd did this crucial middle chapter the second chapter uh it's got cable domino warpath feral Shatterstar. you know boom boom cannonball if i if, if i didn't already say them and uh got juggernaut a lot of great action stuff. A lot of great, big, incredible action stuff. But this cover sold for $408,000. And the splash page of the issue sold for $144,000. I'm looking here. Interior pages sold for $40,000, $32,000. Uh, good God Almighty, $72,000 for this one page. $45,000, $38,000. And then the last page of the book sold for two hundred. dollars four thousand dollars just in the cover and these splash pages you were kissing a million dollars the entirety of the job went for $1, $1. 1.4 million dollars the entirety of this x-men somebody had it the entire job it wasn't todd i have uh, visited at todd's in the last few years he showed me the few spider-man pages he had left and the one new mutants cover that he inked over me that he has and so it's not in his possession uh somebody bought the entire job I think they said in 1997 and they put it up for auction today. And that was a huge, huge deal. Todd's Spider-Man cover went for more at $408,000 than the, um, you know, the, the Mike Mignola death in the family cover that was very anticipated, very anticipated, but uh, $408,000 is a big deal. The Mike Mignola death in the family, the, 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 the crucial, issue where, where where Robin's fate was revealed and Robin is getting is reeling on the cover, blood splatter. It's a very iconic cover in, in the Batman world. This, this is a really weird auction in that a key, crucial Batman, Batman piece of art uh, by George Perez, a Batman George Perez cover was in. This Mike Mignola iconic cover was in. Jim Lee's three Batman covers were in. And, uh, then this, this dark Knight cover, and again, dark Knight uh, had an opening bit of $2 million and with the buyer's premium, which you have to account for, got an extra $400,000 tagged on. So $2.4 million for the dark Knight. Honestly, there were people who were predicting in on these different message boards sales between literally, I kid you not five and $10 million for this. And here's the thing I have, I have held this piece in my hands. Um, it is a beautiful, you know, uh, uh, piece by, by Frank and Lynn Varley, who were together at the time that they did this. They did this. This is like one of the many fine works they did, including 300 and so many more amazing jobs. Uh, huge airbrush-looking blue sky, the great lightning bolt, and the silhouette by Frank Miller. But it is still, at the end of the day, a silhouette. And, and when you buy art, you want something that is, maybe you got a little more teeth to it. It is for sure an iconic silhouette, but it is still a silhouette. And I believe that is what kept it i was on record in these public forums as saying i think it would go between 2.5 and 2.6 million dollars it went for 2.4 million dollars i feel i feel really good about my um prediction some people who were saying five to ten i i just i felt like that that there's no basis in that and it's not do not think that the inflation affected today's that there's a narrative that's out there and that's just ridiculous what i just told you about the todd mcfarlane issue Uh, 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 really a nondescript, just kind of issue of Spider-Man. I mean, Spider-Man teams with the X-Force. There are many pages in that Spider-Man job that Spider-Man's not in. There's an entire page of Cannonball, an entire page of just Juggernaut, Shatterstar battling Juggernaut. There is a, two of the pages are just cable, a giant cable shot. So Spider-Man is not even well represented in this book. He is, you know, fragmented throughout as he swings in and out of the story but there, are, there is a page that is all boom boom and all juggernaut. All total of these pages went for $1.4 million. Jim's, Jim sold three covers for $500,000. The, the Death in the Family cover, I'm sorry if I didn't cover that. Let me get back to that. The Death in the Family cover went for $228,000. There was a lot of money spent on ARC today. D- do not think for one minute that the Dark Knight thing was impacted by inflation. I think the Dark Knight cover was impacted it made two million dollars which is insane 2.4 million dollars it made 2.4 million dollars because it is a significant piece of art an iconic piece millions of dollars on comic book art is rarefied air everyone thought it would be the black first appearance of the black spider-man from secret wars that mike zack uh had in the auction last fall it did not it it, it that still has the record by almost one point Five million—it's—it's it's insane. That, that that almost sold for four million, four million copies. <laughs> that almost sold. That's that Spider-Man black costume Secret Wars page almost sold for four million dollars. This is rarefied air, guys. We're gonna see more of this to come, and uh, I think the Dark Knight—the reason it didn't punch through and hit a higher level—I'll tell you this: pretty much unanimously, everybody's favorite cover on Dark Knight is the cover to number two. It's—I'm I'm looking right now at my desk. Every time that I bought uh, broadcast. Uh, record this podcast for you i am looking at this killer recreation statue a statue of uh the cover to dark knight number two um there are there are action figures that reenact the cover to dark knight number two with batman crouching low in kind of a battle position all his wrinkles on his costume the gloves the mask he's gritting his teeth he's got blood on his lips and mouth it's a killer cover. If that was the cover to number one, I think we would have punched past $2.4 million. We'll never know. That's my opinion. Fun times at the auction. It's going to keep going all weekend long. If something crazy happens, I'll, I'll be back on Tuesday and we'll cover more of that. I'm going to pivot now because something really, truly, unexpectedly terrible happened today. I literally thought there was a few more days. Uh, about... uh. A week ago, I was contacted that a friend of mine, Tim Sale, uh, was in a very bad condition and they were ready to go public with it now because it looked like it was fairly dire. And, and it was, I was told week, two weeks. And so Tim Sale, a magnificent comic book storyteller, graphic artist, and an even more magnificent spectacular person has left this earth he has passed away he died uh today and and that news broke and honestly it broke me i uh was fortunate to get to know tim we were introduced to each other in 1995 via our mutual friend jeff Loeb. i would not have met tim sale without jeff Loeb. jeff and tim were you know the hall notes oates the 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 you know Simon and Garfunkel of comic books. They they worked in tandem. To my left here, I have Daredevil Yellow. I have Superman, Man for All Seasons. I have Batman, The Long Halloween. I have Batman, Dark Victory. I have Spider-Man, Blue. I have Captain America, White. There's Hulk, Grey. These guys did nothing but make the most magical comic book adventures for all of us. Catwoman, Win in Rome. I have uh, poured over these as I have his entire career. Tim was a uh just a brilliant storyteller draftsman artist but he was such a sweet guy I loved his work and I loved him even more than I loved the amazing work I first came to know his work uh, on Deathblow that's when he came onto my radar he had done a Wolverine gambit miniseries for Marvel I had, I had interacted with that briefly but the deathblow stuff that he was doing for Jim Lee at Wildstorm in the very early mid nineties was the stuff that I was like, wow, because I really like what Jim was doing on Deathblow, and I wasn't really ready for Jim not to do Deathblow, but then I didn't miss him one iota because Tim was so spectacular on Deathblow. That uh trade paperback is always nearby. I love it. I love Tim's work on it. He then got in uh went back to Jeff and they made years and years worth of these amazing works um the batman works dark victory and long halloween are cited by director matt reeves uh batman actor robert Pattison as huge influences on the batman which came out this last march in in uh in in uh goes hand in hand with with frank miller's batman year one which as you know i've shared on this podcast before that jeff Loeb was able to convince dc comics to let him and tim play in that sandbox, and and they extended it and did even more adventures in the year one space that Frank Miller and David Mazzuccelli set up than Frank Miller and David Mazzuccelli ever dreamed of. I mean, if they did 100 pages, Tim and Jeff created 300 pages of incredible um, extension, an extension of that world, Long Halloween, Dark Victory. If you haven't experienced Tim sales stuff, it's not too late. His work is available at the touch of your download on comiXology or go and get these wonderful hardcovers and these absolute editions, like the ones that I have. They're all over my bookshelves. And, uh, Tim was a really intelligent artist. And as a person, he was so witty, soft-spoken, dry humor. I used to mock how handsome he was. I would say, Oh, look at, look at those cheekbones. He was such a good looking guy. And you know, um, Today I have revisited my photo albums and photos from my 30th birthday from uh a trip to New York that we all took with our um our our mates. I Jeff and I were married at the time. Tim was had a uh, beautiful young lady that he was dating. Over the years I got to meet several of the different um women that 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 Jeff uh, that, that Tim uh had been you know in relationships with and uh at one point in the summer of 2000, he did this magnificent sketch in my wife's book that I've never shown anybody. I'm going to put it up on social media today. It was a, There's a group of characters I have called The Rejects who I love dearly, and they were my favorite kind of project that I was doing at the time in the late 90s, going into early 2000s. And Jeff, uh, I'm sorry, Tim, <laughs> Tim took my sketchbook and delivered the most magnificent double-page spread of The Rejects. And it it is, unless you're like among the 20 people that I've ever shown my wife's sketchbook to, you know, You haven't seen it. No one's seen it. It's just been something that we, you know, uh, celebrate and look at and are amazed by. And Tim raised the bar. I then took a sketchbook for the girl that he was dating and, uh, tried to return the favor and used colored pencils and watercolors and, and did a double pager of this, uh, uh, the theme of the book was jungle girl and, uh, and this giant gorilla. And, uh, it was super fun. Uh, that, five year period that we just hung out with Tim and, and, and whoever he was, whoever was fortunate enough to hang out with him and Jeff Loeb and all our friends, whether it was Florida, New York, Los Angeles, we just, uh, we just had the best time. And it's sad. It's sad to me that Tim is gone. He's a really sweet man. And, uh, like I said, a really great soul, like, uh, just a deep Deep guy, and and when you talk to him and his wit, and the one thing everyone will tell about tell you, he loved baseball and he loved the Seattle Mariners more than anyone I ever knew. If you went to Emerald City Comic Con, chances were he was dragging you to a baseball game. He wanted you to go and um, watch the Seattle Mariners with him. Uh, I just cannot say enough wonderful things about Tim, and again, I cannot recommend more highly. All of the Batman work. He and Jeff got together and did an anniversary project, of revisiting of the Long Halloween that came out this last December. But you should definitely get the Dark Victory trades, the collections, the singles. You should get the Long Halloween, which kicked it all off. You should check out the Gambit Wolverine miniseries. You should check out Deathblow, the the series that he did with Marvel, the Spider Man, Blue, the Cap, White, Daredevil, Yellow, Hulk, Gray. They are nothing short of Amazing. My personal favorite is Daredevil Yellow. I think Tim flexed artistic muscles. I don't even think he knew he had. There are magnificent spreads and close-ups, and it's just it's just amazing. And Tim uh, Tim was a very singular voice. He he just you could see elements of European artists like Mobius, uh, and at the same time you'd see Alex Toth, you'd see Frank Miller, you'd see John Romita Senior, you'd see Jack Kirby, you'd see all of them, but it was always Tim Sale. I am truly saddened. I'm saddened that my friend Jeff Loeb lost one of his good friends. I am sad that a uh, former acquaintance of mine who I worked with a great deal named Richard Starkings lost, I believe, his very best friend. And the world lost a tremendous talent in Tim Sale, who was not slowing down on any level and was um, doing some of the most magnificent work. I uh, I love you, Timmy. I called you Timmy because Jeff called you Timmy and I never turned back. And I you were always Timmy to me. You're always kind. You were fun. Um, some of the stories about Tim and, 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 and a time that I was called in to kind of help him, uh, as, 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 as an approach to one of his books was, was called into question will be a story I share at another time, but, uh, I really toast and hats off and raise a glass and let's celebrate Tim sale. He is, uh, he was just a magnificent human being. I don't say that all about a lot of people, but just a sweetie, big heart, great looking guy. I said today, I, I mean, I miss you, you handsome, handsome devil. And you know, I'm. you're looking down at me right now and you're laughing because you know, I always, what a, what a face, what a face you had, Timmy. And, uh, just take care. We will see you again. Heaven got a, an outstanding addition today. And so we celebrate the life of Tim sale. Uh, At the end of each episode, I read your guys' reviews, and uh, you know I'm going to do that again today because it really touches me. And and the one thing that Tim, and, and so much of what's gone on in the last month with Neil Adams passing away, with George Perez passing away, I haven't really mentioned it a whole lot, but my mom passed away. And now, Tim, I have learned that you should celebrate the people you like, the people you love, the people who celebrate you, your friends, your family. Um, cause there may not be another time. So I'm not going to let this, uh, opportunity slip away. And I am in fact going to share with you a really sweet review. When you guys leave reviews to me on the different platforms that we share this show, I read them at the end of the show. And today I'm going to read a really beautiful review. They gave us some nice five stars. It's called comics with friends. It says, I have been putting this off for far too long. Rob observations has been on the very top of my podcatcher since it began. And here's why. Rob's show brings me a nostalgia throwback that is just what the doctor ordered in this crazy age. His enthusiasm is what I need in a sea of podcasts out there that focus on beating things down or canceling creative endeavors. Rob gives us a legit look behind the curtain of the comics industry right at the exact moment of the comics boom. And it is both surprising and it's just fun. If you want to listen to someone who loves what he does, loves the comics industry and provides a superior podcast product, observations is that exact show. It's like hanging with an old friend talking comics and the joy that comes with it. Thank you for giving that to me. Five stars. Well-deserved. This is from Charlton hero. It was left just a few days ago. Thank you, Charlton hero. You are way too sweet. Uh, Let me tell you something. I do love what I do. I do love talking about comics. I do love our comics industry. Thank you for this very sweet review. When you guys leave these for me, I will read them at the end of the show. I am always trying to catch up to where you guys are at, and I just cannot thank you enough for supporting this show over the last two-plus years. We are heading into three years now. I can't believe it either. This is, our, uh, I think, our 202nd show. and uh, So, 202 episodes and still going strong, and you guys continue to show up, and I am so, so thankful for you, and I just want to express how much I appreciate it. You guys can reach me on... Social media, I am on Twitter, at Robert Liefeld, the full name, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. On Instagram, on Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld, R-O-B-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. I love to talk to you guys, hear you out, hear your mentions, your comments, your discussions, and your DMs. I interact with a lot of you. Um, I, I try and act with as many of you as I possibly can, especially if you're being nice. I mean, the rude people, quietly, I just mute you and I don't interact with you anymore. And, and if that's a secret, well, now it's out of the bag, but um, just friendly discussions. I love to have them, and I really appreciate listening to all of you guys, whether it's at Twitter, at Robert Liefeld, or Instagram, at Rob Liefeld. I am on Facebook I have a group called Rob Liefeld, an extreme group. I'd love for you to join it. A great bunch of fans that I've known for over 20 years, and we're just continuing to build out, and we share all the different works and characters and publications that I've been involved with along the way. Rob Liefeld, an extreme group. I am the administrator of that group. As is a gentleman named Terry Sala, we will likely be the ones that approve you if you go over to Facebook and join this page. Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld has its own dedicated page, and I would love for you to go and comment and like that page and share um share whatever you're digging over there as well so you guys thank you so much at the end of every episode the very end I tell you guys that I am thinking and rooting for you and I want your spiritual health your emotional health your physical health and your mental health to be accounted for I want you to take care of yourself a lot of the times I just exhale I have a giant beanbag that I kick back I read comics I drink hot chocolate I eat candy chips cupcakes whatever fun food there is there's a time and there's a place for it to chill out Enjoy what you love. Watch great streaming stuff. Right now, I'm watching For All Mankind on Apple. I'm watching Physical. Um, right now, I'm watching uh, The Offer on Paramount Plus. I'm 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 just I'm watching Battlestar Galactica reruns on Tubi because they make me smile. Okay, um, you guys, what 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 uh what we need to do is always just kick back, put our feet up, and just intake something that we really dig. Eat some fun food. Share time with your friends, your family. Laugh with them see movies together, read a book, read a comic, just uh, feed your soul, feed your soul and and chill out and just know that I am always pulling for you and rooting for you. And uh, I sure do hope that you make your way back again and uh, circle back to this podcast because I'll be here and we most certainly will talk again soon.